Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to the Indie Rugby Podcast Japan 2019 in association with Tudor Watch, the official timekeepers of the Rugby World Cup. Today I'm joined by Duncan Beck, the England Rugby Union correspondent for the Press Association. Hello there. Hello Duncan, thanks for joining me today. Um, no we're currently at the England team base in Miyazaki and we're going to take an in-depth look today at England, the, their head coach Eddie Jones, his 31-man squad that he's brought out here for kind of a pre-World Cup training camp and look at whether they can really win the Rugby World Cup. We'll also discuss their disrupted arrival in Japan and take a closer look at what the road ahead looks like for one of the genuine World Cup contenders. So, Duncan, you've been covering England for the last six years um, and international rugby on the whole for 19 years. So, having seen the build-up to 2015 in particular and a few of those before, how do you think the preparations have gone this time around and how do you think they differ? Um... Certainly on the surface, they seem to have gone very well. England will be pleased with the, with the results they've had in the, and the performances in the warm-up games. A great win against Ireland, um, good win against Wales at Twickenham, thrashed Italy. The only blot, of course, was that, that defeat in Cardiff, but that was pretty narrow. So overall, you'd look at that and you say that they're doing well, they can be pleased with their progress. Obviously, they also thrashed Ireland in the Six Nations and then they came unstuck against, Ireland, against Wales in, in Cardiff. So... Things, things can change very yeah. quickly. You can't read too much into these particular games. And that, that defeat didn't really feel like a massive defeat in Cardiff, did it? it, it they, they took a lot of positives out of that. Yeah, and they're hammering away at the line at the end there. They could have, um, they could have gone over, but they didn't really threaten the line. But they, they were pummeling away at it. And um, so that, it was enough to take from that performance to suggest it wasn't, it wasn't a bad defeat. So o- overall, they'll be pretty pleased. And there's clearly an awful lot of detail gone into the preparations for this. More so than it's probably been any other campaign we can think of. Um, but then the proof is in the pudding, what will happen over the next few weeks out here in Japan. One thing that Eddie has done that's slightly different to what his predecessor, Stuart Lancaster, did was name the squad early. Mm. And you, you got to see how the uncertainty kind of affected England four years ago. Do you think, in hindsight, now that we're a bit further down the line, that was a bit of a masterstroke from Jones? I do. I think that was a really smart move. And, and you talked about four years ago. What was interesting there was it came down to they used they went down to the final deadline right up to the deadline where Stuart Lancaster was making the final call and it came down to Sam Burgess or Lufa Burrell and obviously he made it was it was good for us at that particular time because it gave us plenty to to talk about with with Sam Burgess there but it was undoubtedly a distraction for the squad and the team um, that it was taking that it went down to the deadline in, in that way and it caused Lufa Burrell was very upset obviously he expected to go. It was a controversial decision and it undoubtedly affected the squad. Um, this year, obviously, we've seen Eddie, I think it was August the 12th, he announced it. When you first saw that, you thought, that's quite a bold move. But actually, it's been, it has been a bit of a masterstroke. It's enabled everyone in the squad knows what's happening. Um, it enables them to prepare for the World Cup, for the rest of the warm-up games without having to worry, am I in, am I out? And in fact, it became clear that it was a bit of a player-led thing. Eddie spoke to the players and said... 
you know, what could we do differently from four years ago? And they said the naming of the squad was one of those things. that They appreciated the fact they knew earlier on. So Ben Young's made that clear in, the, in one of the briefings we had. And a, a couple of coaches, I'm thinking Warren Gatland in particular, mentioned that, you know, I wouldn't want to be choosing my team on Monday like Eddie is, but... I kind of feel like that's actually a reflection of how far England were down the line in choosing their squad compared to Wales, who had uncertainties almost across the board. We, we saw their selection was quite surprising. Rob Evans being left out. Yeah. They had the disruption at 10 with Gareth Anscombe ruled yeah. out, and then it was who, they, who were they going to take. I think it does, it does feel that England are a little bit further down the line than some of their biggest rivals, particularly in the, the Northern Hemisphere. Yeah, sure. I mean, Eddie's always, always said he... I would say he knew a long ago what, what is final 20 what was 27 or 28 of the, of the 31 players obviously we've had a few bolters come through but he would he would have known the core of that squad the vast you know the vast majority of the squad and his preferred starting 15 for some time which would have enabled him to to name it early in the way they did and he's just filled in the slots as he said he wants those last few slots he said they're really important slots sort of 28 29 30 31 guys who could well not be involved in a single minute of, of game time but he wants good tourists, people just happy to be there, add something to the squad behind the scenes. Those are the sort of guys he's looking for. And I guess that's why he's gone for some you know, younger guys and, and bolters in that case, like Rory McConaughey. When you look at the squad and you look who's not in the squad, does it work for you? Do you think that he's got, got the balance right or would you have bought one or two other players that aren't here? Uh, scrum half's a big concern for me. Um, Willie Hines, I think that was a, that's been a major gap. Where a only taking the two scrum halves be the second one is Willie Hines who's pretty much come from nowhere to six months ago he was not even in the conversation yet here he is in Japan and as one of only two scrum halves he's guaranteed to be involved in every game unless they throw a curveball and, and pick uh, George Ford as a backup scrum half which George Ford can play scrum yeah. half but he hasn't played there much we've only heard that that's happened in training we've yeah. never actually seen that yet have we yeah yeah. I, I mean surprisingly he didn't take the opportunity to, to play him during the warm-up games just for give him 10 minutes give George Ford test him out there see how he gets on we, we didn't see that so um, t- to me that's a big gamble and in the, I think he's played two or three times during the warm-up games but I don't think I've not seen enough from Willie Hines to suggest he was a he should have been picked ahead of Danny Kerr I suppose, um, or Ben Spencer even. I suppose we can then use hindsight again and say well with Kerr he wasn't in the best form but now he's injured and out for three months um would you have brought him or would you have brought Spencer or would you have gambled on two scrum halves and gone with a care of Spencer or do you think they needed three because of that uncertainty I would have brought three scrum halves I think just about every every team does that um, I mean Eddie's admitted himself it's a gamble he, he does realise that he's not just making these decisions and thinking everything's fine he does understand they, they will be a bit exposed if, if, if Ben Youngs goes down injured for example um, but I mean, Care he, he was overlooked right from the start before he before he had that injury. Obviously, things would have unfolded in a different way had he been with with England. I just don't think you ignore his experience and he, he can change a game. He's, he probably lacks the control at, at scrum half that someone like uh, Ben Youngs provides. Yeah. But he's a different type of player and he can change a game. So I, I would have brought him definitely. Okay, let's look a, a bit closer at the head coach, the main yeah. guy, Eddie Jones. Yeah. Um, He's, of course, the first foreign coach to take charge of England. And do, do you think that that's helped bring something to England that they've never had previously? Um, yeah, definitely. I, mean, he's, I think he's, you look at the way sometimes, look at where they play, and they play with a different... Certainly in the, in the backs. And I think this has particularly changed since Scott Wisemantle's taken on. 
Um, they play with more ambition. They're more precise. It's it's really good rugby to watch. They during the Six Nations they played the best rugby. There's no doubt about that. They didn't win it. They didn't win the Grand Slam. That was Wales. So you could say well Wales played the best rugby. But in terms of it being easy on the eye, what England were doing was was very good to watch. They, they scored more tries than any other team, um, and some of those tries were fantastic. So I think it's brought um, a different in in attack. It's brought a different dimension. Um, it, it's but I also think he's, he's I think what he's what he's, he's an outstanding coach um, and I think what he's brought is what an outstanding coach brings whereas his predecessor Stuart Lancaster um, had very little experience particularly at international he, he was he'd been in a position for a few a few Six Nations and was then in the World Cup Eddie Jones has been around the block I think this is his fourth World Cup yeah. he was coaching Australia in 2003 so therefore I think he, 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 as much as his nationality He's just bringing the benefit of years of international experience. I think as well, if you look at the attack that you were just talking about there, and there's now threats all across the board. Every position, suddenly, you don't know what they can do. You see when England are able to get out the back, and we saw that Owen Farrell-George Ford combination reignited in the warm-up. Suddenly, you've got Elliot Daly cropping up, Johnny May cropping up, uh, Joe Cock and the Seager cropping up. any one of them are in position to get the ball and you don't really know what they're going to do with it and I think that's given England something that they were missing probably for the last two World Cup cycles yeah ab- absolutely um, you could go back even further I, think. I mean you could argue since 2003 you could even argue that this has more threats on in the back line than, than in 2003 like Joe Cook and Singer I mean how, how do you stop someone like that Manu Johnny May is, is incredibly fast and he's a very good player on top of his speed uh, Elliot Daly is fantastic on his day. Um, yeah, there's, there's so much. It is a it's a dangerous backline. So we've, if they get the most out of them, they, they'll do well. We've seen a, a great deal of Johnny May over the last few years, yeah. and I think now we do have to ask the question: Is he currently the best playing wing in world rugby? Um, he's he's right up there. I think it's interesting with Johnny. He was he's always been naturally very gifted, but what seemed to where it seemed to turn for him was on last year's tour to South Africa. We just suddenly exploded he just seemed to be in the right place at the right time his finishing was fantastic obviously he had the pace he just seemed like his his game had suddenly taken been taken to a new dimension he followed that up in the autumn in the six nations and he's a you could probably you could argue he's the most dangerous winger in, in world rugby at the moment he's, he's great to watch do you think he's thriving off what Eddie's brought because we, we saw that over the first few years he's able to work with the backs he was the backs coach until wise mantle came in to share the role but when you watch the warm-ups at Twickenham or wherever, Eddie's still he's there running the backs. He still gets hands-on with the backs until they join up as a squad. And we've seen this increase in his game. It's almost coincided with Jones getting to grips with him, being, right, this is what I want from you. Yeah, yeah, but probably the show of faith from Jones. I mean, he's, he's been pretty loyal to, to... I mean, May's been a regular starter since beyond, well before 2015. But um, he, he's, he's stuck with Johnny May. And there, you know, there were times when you're thinking, is he going to realise his potential? Um, I, I would say, I mean, you, maybe it's coincidental, but the time, the sort of explosion of, of Johnny's game has coincided with Scott Wisemantle came in for that South Africa tour. Now, he, I know he he likes working with Scott Wisemantle, and, and, and Scott has said he, he just he said uh, Johnny's Johnny. He's a special, a special kind of uh, player, and you kind of just have to let him go. So, so maybe as Wisemantle's come in, worked out what it 
takes to get the best out of, out of Johnny May and just sort of uh, release that. But then Johnny May himself has said that it, this, what we saw in South Africa and what we've seen since then was the, accum- was the, um, was the result of a cumulative work that he's put in behind the scene over years. He, he, you know, he's a bit of a comedy character sometimes, but he trains exceptionally hard and he's, he's one of the most professional trainers. Um, if you listen to all his teammates, does an awful lot of stretching, pays for his own camps to go to uh, Texas to train in the, the uh, Michael Johnson. Yeah, that um, takes a committed type of individual, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely, definitely. And seen the benefits of it. He, he's, he's very driven. So, Looking um, broader across the squad, and we've already touched on the scrum half gamble, but there's a couple more elsewhere, the only two tight heads. And the one I want to talk about in particular, the injuries. We haven't seen any of Jack Knoll. We haven't seen any of Henry Slade. And we've only seen 17 minutes of Mako Vinipolo now. They're all here, and there's a very good chance that Mako and Jack won't play for the first two games minimum. It may even be more. Mm -hmm. We we don't know yet. Uh, We understand that Slade's back in full training and should be ready to go, but we also left Newcastle with a few more uncertainties Mm -hmm. there. Is there just one too many gambles in the squad? Could could they come uh, unstuck in the group stage because of these? which yeah. is, is pr- probably the worst-case scenario because we're all expecting them to yeah. get by Tonga and USA with relative ease. Yeah, I, I would say that would be my biggest concern about the, the squad as it stands. Is, is not who is in it, but it's the number of injured players and uh, players who've come to the World Cup without any game time or very little game time. And th- these are just the guys that we know who are injured. So there'll be f- several behind the scenes who are carrying knocks who are sort of on that borderline. And players always say you're never 100%. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, so there'll be a, there'll be a number of those. Um, I mean, Jack now is clearly a very good player, but he hasn't played. Or Henry Slade, neither of them have played since the Premiership final. Uh, I think it's June the first or second. Um, so that's, that's that's a long time, and Jack will hopefully be fit for for Argentina or, or France at the back end of of the of the pool stage. But um, if, if they don't come through, they're suddenly becoming exposed, and they're having to rely on the same. Many of the same players. Um, Mako is obviously such a such an outstanding player that he, you'd say, he's worth worth the gamble. Mm. Um, and the and the hope is that he'll get fit for Argentina or France, or if not, the quarterfinals. He's that good that you that you would take that risk on him. Um, but it's when you it's a cumulative number of risks that they're taking. Um, that would be my my concern. If one of the two of them go wrong, particularly at scrum half, for example, although there's no injury at scrum half at the moment, then you're starting to look. Okay, what do we do here? We could see the scenario where players, you know, one or two players go home and they bring another couple of they players out. Replaced. I think that could happen quite I easily. mean, we, we do have to take that into consideration that we haven't even started the World Cup yeah. yet and there will be injuries along the way yes. to add to the two that are already there existing. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, that's a given. As much as we can't predict the future, there are always injuries. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, so taking all three of those into account, the different areas we touched on, I guess it all boils down to are England good enough to win the World Cup? And I think we'd we both agree that it's a very open World Cup, mm-hmm. possibly the most open World Cup we've had ever. Um, but while England are in the mix, do they have the tools, do they have the players, do they have the coaches and the structure to go and win the World Cup? Yeah, absolutely, yeah, absolutely they do. I mean, they have all of those things you, you just mentioned there. Um, they're very capable of winning the World Cup and it surprise no one if, if they did. However, it would surprise no one if they went out in the quarterfinals. And I think this is the big big thing with uh, Eddie Jones as England at the moment is that you don't know what to expect from them and that was the Six Nations was that in a bit of a microcosm you could see they thrashed Ireland 
in Dublin, and that was a great performance, great win. Um, Ireland were the Six Nations champions, Grand Slam champions. Um, it did a real number on them. Everything was looking great, and then they went to Cardiff. They were sitting pretty at half time. They thought there was only one winner. In the second half, they lost their way in quite, a, quite an alarming fashion, and, and Wales went on to win and went on to win the Grand Slam. And then, of course, we saw them crash against Scotland. Um, 31 0 up, and then it ended up in a 39 draw. Um, so that you just don't know what to expect. They could go and win it. They could come unstuck against Australia in the quarterfinals and, and go home. And you would you wouldn't be surprised by either result, to be honest. Yeah, and there's a strange irony that the two sides that put them out the last World Cup are their two potential quarterfinal opponents. You know, that yeah. story almost writes itself, doesn't it? The old revenge mission. Yeah. If England make it through, it's not given that they make it through. But I think we'd all back them to get through. They should beat at least one of Argentina and France and then results should go their way yeah. to see them through you'd expect to see them expect to see them in the semi-finals I really think they want to avoid Wales even though Wales have their injury issues um, Anscombe being out uh, Faletel Faletel gone as well. a big one yeah yeah um, so even without those guys you England do not want to play Wales in the quarters I'd say because they just their games are so tight they bring out something in each other that that, that age-old rivalry between the teams. I think it just uh, it will make it a really tricky quarter. Australia, England have their number under Eddie for, for sure. I don't think they've lost them once since Eddie's been coach. Um, so you'd expect them to to beat Australia. Then then you're looking at a semi-final against New Zealand. Um, well. That's, that'd be a great match to see. It's, it's They're almost, capable of winning that. It's almost a final, isn't it? Yeah. When you look at the, the yeah. form teams around at the moment, you would say England, New Zealand are probably up there. Yeah, definitely. Um, but, but it goes good. back to what you said earlier. There's so many teams that, that can win it. You probably look at five or six. South Africa looking good. Um, I don't think there's anyone that's going to go into that, those semi finals not having realistic expectations that they can win it when you're only yeah. two games away. Yeah, yeah. Okay, well, that's kind of England's preparations taken care of. Join us after the break where we'll be discussing their actual arrival in Japan and what the next 10 days looks like for them in Miyazaki. Welcome back to the Indie Rugby Podcast Japan 2019 in association with Tudor Watch, the official timekeepers of the Rugby World Cup. Let's talk about actually being here in Japan and it wasn't the the smoothest of starts of the campaign, so to speak. And I know you arrived the day before England, uh, which meant you were here for Typhoon Faxai. That must have been a pretty uh, scary experience. It was, definitely it was. I mean, if you haven't experienced any major weather event like that before, then it was was a bit bit worrying at certain points. I mean, it really hit Tokyo overnight. Um, So, I mean, I remember walking around in the day and... It was near a train station and over the channel it came is uh, a message obviously it was in Japanese first and then it was in English uh, typhoon approaching please be aware of the forecast take necessary precautions so the city is incredibly or Japan is incredibly well set up for these type of uh, you know, extreme weather yeah and um, and then you sort of notice that when it finally hit in the hotel it woke me up in my hotel room rain battering the windows howling wind outside open the windows and it's just you could see how strong the, the, the weather was. I mean, it probably uh, didn't help that you are on the 29th floor of one of the biggest floor. towers in Tokyo. Yeah, and when you got up, it was swaying. So the hotel was swaying beneath your feet. But, I mean, that's obviously so it can... Um, so it's better adept to, at dealing with these kind of strong winds. Yeah, so that, that, that'll obviously be for earthquakes as well, won't it? Yeah. The, the kind of all factors in natural disasters. Of earthquakes, Godzilla, that type <laughs> of stuff. <laughs> so it's, it's all well... Uh, it's, 
and it was quite reassuring in a way because you wake up the next morning and there's debris there's a lot of debris you know sort of trees uh, you, can, you can see the after effects of, of, of the typhoon but um, actually the hotel life went back to normal very quickly you know the staff there serving breakfast although there's a lot of travel uh, disruption it was just it's they're clearly very used to dealing yeah. with this kind of stuff and it's quite reassuring because we came here thinking you know knowing that one of the big sort of threats if you like to the tournament or the things that could uh, undermine it will be extreme weather events because this is the time of year when Japan has its worst uh, weather yeah. events so you, you saw how good how what good they they dealt with it and it was uh, yeah it was quite reassuring but then we also saw one of the the after effects being the the road closure that resulted in yeah. England's coach not arriving and then yeah. being stranded in their hotel room or not hotel room sorry stranded from getting to their hotel for five hours they're at the airport they filled their time by playing cricket in yeah. the car park yeah. as we saw yeah. um, I mean that's just not the ideal preparation you want is it as you start to get very stressed after mm. an 11 hour flight from London and yeah. you want to just get to your hotel and relax and then they had a flight the next day so mm. you're already worrying about are we going to make the flight do yeah. we have everything in place to cover if we do get stranded at the the airport for the night I mean do you think that will have a lasting effect or do you think there's enough time here in Miyazaki where we are for 10 days that they'll be able to fully get that out of their system? Oh, definitely there's enough time, yeah. I mean, it, that, that would have it would have been uh, sapping their patience a little bit while, while they're at the airport waiting, but they were waiting in the lounge for the majority of it, so it wasn't as if they were just finding a spot on the floor in the in the main arrivals hall. Um, so they were, they were well looked after. However, you know, a five-hour wait would have been... Deep, uh, very frustrating. Um, I don't think the journalists would have coped too well. <laughs> well Five-hour wait. <laughs> <laughs> but the guys who, uh, who who went out to try to to meet the team to film them, so the guys from Sky and um, one or two snappers, they, they were unable to get there because all the the, the trains had stopped. The trains had been cancelled. Um, the roads it was all gridlocked around the airport. Hence, the team bus could not arrive at the airport to uh, to collect the players and uh, take them to the hotel. So it was um, it, it was carnage. But I mean, it, they'll, they'll soon they'll soon. Uh, Acclimatize, get over it, acclimatize to it, and uh, yeah, I mean, you, you can. The one critic you could ask, why did they come into Narita Airport? There was a British Airways flight into Haneda Airport. Um, it's about ask, forty kilometers closer, isn't it? Yeah, it's a lot easier ride into into the centre. So you could ask, you know, why, why did they come on that? But I mean, it will, it will quickly be forgotten. And then we thought it was hot in Tokyo, and then yeah. we got to Miyazaki, yeah. and yeah. it is sweltering. I think yeah. the, without the breeze, and even though we're on the seafront, there's very little wind here. We, it feels like 38 degrees, and mm. we're, we're well above 30. But yeah. you add the humidity to that, and I think you can almost boil it within yourself after five minutes in the sun. Yeah. yeah. There's, it's definitely going to be tough this training camp for them and Eddie has planned it as a pre-season so to speak mm. uh, they've got three days of conditioning and then they go hard at it ready for the Tonga game I, I don't envy them it's, it can't be a comfortable place to be yeah yeah it's difficult I mean when Eddie was out they did the two training camps during the summer in, in Treviso he, he called them heat camps heat and humidity camps um, they, they looked at two places to train in the build up to the World Cup so one was uh, Miami or in Florida and the other was Treviso because those are the conditions that closely most closely mirror what they're expecting out here in terms of the heat and humidity now they went for Treviso at the time thinking oh yeah you, you don't really pay okay it's going to be hot and humid but it's not we went out to, to Treviso for the second camp um, to do a few interviews and it was hot and it was it was humid but it, was, it wasn't to the degree that it was here and it is uh, it's definitely quite 
uh, takes it's going to take a while to get used to it. That's just for us. Never mind. We're not playing. We're not playing in it. We're not running around in it. <laughs> Thankfully, yeah. Yeah. but it is it is hot and it's humid and it is uh, it takes some getting used to. I suppose that might actually give Japan an extra edge that most hosts don't. I, mean, I can maybe think of South Africa and the altitude, yeah. and that's it really. Yeah. You know, there probably wasn't any bonus to England or New Zealand and playing at home beyond having the home support and familiar surroundings whereas here you've got conditions that really suit the players that play here Yeah. so yeah. it'll be interesting to see how that plays out yeah definitely I mean that'll be potentially something that will help Japan I mean England are well prepared for it. I mean that's one of the benefits of having of Eddie's experience coaching Japan is he will have known all about the conditions at this time of year um, and obviously he's prepared for that in the best way possible with these heat camps in, in Treviso so they've done if they come unstuck that won't be prepared for the conditions won't be a reason why they, they couldn't really have done much more on that in that respect Okay, well, that wraps us up for today's episode. We'll be back on Friday morning with a special episode looking into the diversity of the England team and the rogue idea that just maybe winning the World Cup can be the answer to fixing broken Britain. Remember to subscribe to this series on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Acast, or wherever you listen for all the latest from the competition. And we'll see you next time. Bye-bye.